Prior to November 17, 2023, Washington State stood alone in the U.S. as the only state not extending SCS benefits to its state employees, state-sponsored health plans, and injured workers under Washington labor and industries. However, change was on the horizon. In an unprecedented collaboration, doctors, medical societies, industry leaders, patients, and state senators joined forces to champion the cause for inclusive coverage. Leading the charge at the hearing was the Washington State Physicians Spinal Cord Stimulation Workgroup. This dedicated team of local pain management experts courageously challenged the validity of the Washington Health Technology Clinical Committee, or HTCC, report, which used inaccurate, outdated, and clinically uninformed evidence to deny coverage of spinal cord stimulation. As a result, Washington State Healthcare Authority, or HCA, which serves over two and a half million people, preliminarily voted to cover SCS. The HCA will reconvene later this month to further delineate stipulations. You're listening to the Pain Matters Podcast, presented by the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the nation's leading podcast for healthcare providers, focused on providing the best care today, tomorrow, and beyond. Each episode, we'll share the latest innovations and practical applications that directly impact how we care for patients and measure success in multidisciplinary care. Let's get started. Today, we have the privilege to host the very physicians who spoke at the November 17th HTCC hearing. By arming the state with a realistic understanding of spinal cord stimulation advances and the state of the evidence, they changed coverage policy. Let's extend a warm welcome to Dr. Steve Stanos, Jingjing Fangfang, and Brett Stacy as they share their insights and experiences from the front line of this groundbreaking advocacy. Every text has a context, and this is not the first time that a hearing was held on spinal cord stimulation in Washington state. Before we dive deep into the most recent hearing, we invite neurosurgeon and retired Johns Hopkins professor, Dr. Richard North, to tell us about his experience dating back to 2008. Dr. North is a pioneer in spinal cord stimulation, a father of the field, and a legend. Dr. North, please help us set the stage. Thank you for the opportunity to introduce this podcast about recent coverage decisions in the state of Washington, for which I congratulate organized neuromodulation societies in general, and Dr. Derbakula in particular. This takes me back over 15 years to May 5th of 2008, when I made a pilgrimage to the state of Washington to give a presentation to their Department of Labor and Industries, which at the time was not favorably inclined towards spinal cord stimulation for their workers' compensation patients. Uh, At issue then was a report by Hollingworth, Turner, Comstock, and Deo, who had done a study of SCS for failed back surgery syndrome, which eventually was published in 2010. This occasioned some interesting letters to the editor and ongoing controversy. Please refer to the online footnotes to this podcast for references to these actual publications. At the 2008 meeting, I presented a very detailed critique of the study 
but only a small audience in a government office saw and heard it. Fifteen years ago, we didn't have virtual meetings as you do now, and so we could not present to large audiences as is possible now. And we couldn't present details or large volumes of data as you can now. I was intrigued, uh, Dr. D, by your mention of rapidly projecting a huge slide deck and thereby putting it on the record. That seems to me a very artful way to use modern technology to amplify your efforts. Back in the day, however, we had to wait two years for publication uh, of the paper and then months for publication of a letter to the editor which, of course, was limited in length then as it is now. Turner had all responded, but then, as now, the journal did not allow us to follow up, as Turner at all presumably knew. Uh, thus, they were able to sidestep or ignore some of our points, knowing that we couldn't and wouldn't be able to respond. So they were artful, too. Here we are now in 2024, and notwithstanding all our advances in technology, we still have many of the same constraints on journal communications and letters to the editor. This along with our ongoing methodological, ethical, and other concerns about study design, systematic review, and meta-analysis. This 2008 adventure in Washington was one of my first on behalf of a charitable nonprofit foundation, which we had just established, and which via wikistim.org continues to provide an online discussion forum and bi bibliographic services to the neuromodulation community to facilitate rapid and ongoing communication. So I encourage you to use that resource and I wish you success. Uh, I thank you once again for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Dr. North. Let's start from the very basics. How do things work in Washington State in regards to the hearings? What are the different entities and authorities that uh, we need to kind of spell out before we even talk about your hearing? In Washington State, the health care authority covers approximately a third of the citizens of the state. And that includes not just people on Medicaid, but public employees or employees of a public university. Um, for their health insurance. And there's a top-down kind of approach to some, some aspects of it, including technology. So they have a committee that specifically looks at technology that could be costly or risky or have other significant impacts that determines coverage for a variety of things, including spinal cord stimulation. Since 2010, there's been no coverage for spinal cord stimulation in the state of Washington. The ir irony here is I have been able to put a spinal cord stimulator into a properly insured patient, but if I needed one, I could not get one. The majority of patients we see in our clinic have HCA-connected insurance because if you work at University of Washington, you have HCA-connected insurance. So I was quite motivated, and I realized if I didn't step up, then who was going to? So I, I felt like from the beginning, I need, needed to be involved. Yeah, this is absolutely shocking. Um, and it's just so everyone understands, we're talking about, I think, 2.5 million people here, right, that are affected in terms of coverage. Yes, and that also it. includes, you know, injured workers as well, which we sometimes forget. So uh, let's hear about the journey itself, your journey, how we even got to the point of the hearing. 
if you could walk us through the key steps and milestones that led us to this significant opportunity to advocate for SCS coverage in front of the Washington HTCC or Health Technology Clinical Committee. After 2015, when new technology started coming on the market, Together with a couple other pain physicians, we reached out to the committee and said, hey, can you look at the SES evidence? It's rapidly changing. It's not the same as what you reviewed before. And they said, no. And then they gave me these answers like, uh, there's not enough evidence to, for a formal re-review. We, we asked twice. Um, and then another group of us started talking about this this topic to try to move it forward. And and finally, uh, Jennifer Lee was the, was the motivating person who said, let's just make this happen. And she she said, here's the template of what they want. I'm going to divide up the work. You're going to do this section. You're going to do this section. And we submitted a request for a formal re-review. After that, a whole nother series of steps get started. And that, that uh, was submitted in the late summer of 2022. At that time, like Brett said, um, a different... Uh, physician groups uh, like our hospital uh, at Providence Swedish, um, we uh, drafted a letter. Um, Brett's uh, group, the University of Washington and others, all individually sent letters um, and with the goal of petitioning the HTCC to formally uh, agree to review spinal cord stem. Uh, fortunately, they decided to review the literature. The normal process um, at that time for a coverage decision is they hire a third-party vendor, uh, in this case was Aggregate Analytics. Um, that group does the formal review. Um, they also ask for public comment, and so we commented a number of times, um, and also introduced a lot of the issues around the evidence and the, the new evidence that was out for spinal cord stem. So we were early on um, starting to tell our story, uh, which we felt in a lot of these reviews are always missed. Um, uh, and then the other part of the process, um, when they decided uh, to have the formal review, um, was they hire a, a, a medical expert um, who uh, it serves uh, the committee by reviewing the literature and then is available during the hearing to answer any questions uh, to help clarify um, anything or any questions that they may have uh, from the third party vendors uh, review. They also open up a very short part, um, a short amount of time for public comment. Um, we had 40 minutes um, for the entire state. So anyone, patients, uh, advocacy groups, uh, industry uh, could uh, advocate to get approval for time. Uh, we decided as a group to pool our time together uh, and we were able to uh, get 20 minutes um, from the state uh, for our presentation. Uh, and that led to uh, us uh, coordinating with other groups um, to really help make sure there was no, uh, no redundancy in what the groups were presenting because we realized you know, a short 40 minute time is really, you know, minimal amount of time to get our points across. Uh, and I think, you know, Fong can ex explain about the more technical process um, around uh, the, the key questions uh, and the specific questions uh, that they ask uh, that we had to respond to. To summarize, there's a lot of uh, written um, voices prior to um, a meeting that's held. That's the ultimate HTCC meeting where all the letters and all the evidence and all the people that like to speak will come together on one day uh, in front of the committee to have this discussion about SCS. So we just completed that meeting and here with you guys today. When we were getting ready for the meeting, our, our motions went up and down with different points. And our impression, because that's what their website said, was that they were going to be having a public meeting. And we were organizing for this public meeting. And our goal was to have the meeting room 
overflowing with people. So they would have to have standing room only or move to a bigger venue or something like that. And then they told us, oh, no, it's Zoom because of the pandemic. And we know the pandemic doesn't prevent lots of other meetings from happening for this one it was going to. And we're initially very disappointed because all this effort wasn't going to work. But then we realized that it could have a huge advantage because as, as Steve and Fong know, we were able to have people from all over the country log in and participate as if they were in the meeting room here in Washington. So that was fantastic. But secondly, we decided we were going to have our own meeting. So we we had a conference room. There's about 15 of us meeting together. And we were muted 90% of the time. But the rest of the time, we could be talking and and, and, and reacting to what they're saying and you know shouting expletives at the screen and also messaging other people, and making points. So at one point in, in, the, in the meeting, only two committee members had their had their uh, cameras on. The rest of them were all dark. We messaged the person who was running the meeting and say, this is a, a public open meeting. This is inappropriate. Make them turn their cameras on. And then he interrupted the meeting and said, we've had a request because it's a public meeting that you turn your cameras on. Then they turned their cameras on. And you can see that they were actually paying attention in there. It was it was wonderful. It was great. And, um, you know, it just, it even though it was Zoom, it, it was really fun. It was it was super fun to be there, and the camaraderie amongst us was was really was really great. And we were all doing things related to this at the same time, messaging people, uh, you know, thinking about how we're, we're going to do next. It was great. This effort required collaboration across various sectors. I think this is amazing that you managed to pool your time. I mean, what an innovative idea. Let's let's pool our time so we can have the maximal impact, right? So how did you manage to bring together physicians, medical societies, industry leaders, legislators, all for this cause? And this is very significant today because there has been significant fracturing and dilution of our voice in pain medicine with these battles between industry partners and even with all these competing pain medicine societies? Well, I'll say a couple of things. One is we named our group. And once we named our group, whenever we sent an email to a colleague or someone from an organization, we'd say, please don't, please request time and donate your time to our group. So many, many people donated time to us and they were giving, given three in three minute increments. Um, so that's one thing. Second thing is, Dr. Stanos was former president of AAPM. Fong's really well connected. We have once you get reach out to other friends, they reach out to other friends and other friends, and we just we just reached across the state, and we made contacts with industry and with different organizations, and just pestered people and said, "This is really important. We're an outlier state, but if this goes down, it may impact." policies in other states. So please, please try to help us out here with writing letters and asking for time and donating it. And if we, and if we end up speaking separately, let's coordinate things. So each yeah. group or individual would have gotten three minutes. So the three of you collaboratively would have only had nine minutes, but because you pulled your time, that's how you got this um, extended period of time, 20 minutes. Yeah, and in 20 minutes is not a lot of time to talk about you know such complex issues around the literature review and and you know our goal if you was as a as a group of physicians was to help provide clinical expertise that the evidence review did not have and the people on the committee didn't have so in a short amount of time our goal is how do we clear up questions about a review that we didn't agree with but also try to educate them so they can make an informed decision they don't make the decision based on what 
the third party vendor tells them. They look at the data and then as a group, uh, which is actually the rest of the hearing that day, um, the, the group decides and they make their preliminary. In this case, they made a preliminary decision to accept spinal cord stimulation, um, yet they were still working out issues around um, criteria for, for implant. So you guys had 20 minutes. What were the rest of the 20 minutes for? Who was speaking? What parties were involved? Well, the uh, industry uh, group, um, the, the major groups that companies that uh, provide spinal cord stimulation, uh, they actually uh, presented, I think we're given uh, four to eight minutes to present. Um, uh, ASIP had a small a presentation of, of four to five minutes, uh, and they also had some other advocacy groups. Um, what we did was, you know, communicated with those groups to make sure we could at least break up some of the content um, because we know it was such a short period of time. Uh, and so um, industry really just talked about the the changes um, that occur- have occurred with the technology uh, over the many years. Um, uh, NANS also presented and, and did a great job of just kind of highlighting where this fits in with the opioid epidemic, uh, healthcare disparities, um, inequities in care. Uh, and that was also done by uh, ASIP's group. So we really, you know, try to coordinate the messaging because, again, we knew we really had a very small um, time to present. And we really wanted to focus on our key areas, uh, which we felt were going to be important for them to make uh, a positive decision. What added to the anxiety before the meeting was they explained that by uh, rules, they could, um, if another person wanted to present that day, they could take time away from us. Um, but we, you know, looked at precedents that had been set in the state, which we didn't feel was that, that that was accurate, that they could take time away from us. So we did, in a, I think, in a good way, try to communicate um, before the meeting, like Brett said, through one person. So Vertaj Singh and our group did all the communications. Um, and I think they were aware that, you know, we had behind us, you know, societies from across the country. Um, the other thing that I'll add that I think was a benefit was making the meeting virtual, we were able to reach out to our colleagues across the country and ask them to sign up to attend. Uh, and so the healthcare authority was aware of, you know, of this huge number of um, physicians and the healthcare providers that actually signed up for the meeting, which had a really strong impact, I think, um, uh, on the outcome. So this report, you guys have mentioned it in various capacities. It was put together by Aggregate Analytics. You already told us um, you also said that it was basically outdated, um, perhaps inaccurate. Tell us a little bit about this. Let's summarize the key findings of this aggregate analytics report. Tell us the rationale behind their decision against coverage and what was wrong with that report. We decided that we needed to divide our presentation into an introduction, Dr. Stanos. Me, my, my role was to go after the report and talk about its limitations and then Dr. Xing to, to present the wonderful alternatives, which was the stuff that they had ignored. <laughs> and so my, my job was to look, to look at the, the report. And so basically, AAI is given a task of addressing four key questions and generating what they call an evidence report. They, in their initial generation of that report, there are no uh, clinicians involved. It's a just a look at the literature. And they prioritize sham placebo-controlled studies. Um, and they prioritize non-industry funded studies. Um, They didn't seem to have any understanding of the significant watershed in SES technology. With the technology available in the United States before 2015 and and since then, with these new technologies that really have different mechanisms of of action and much, much better outcomes. Um, 
And they really, when they were selecting studies, if it was a sham placebo-controlled study, they gave it a lot of a lot of weight, and and they there and they didn't know the clinical details to see like the really obvious flaws in some of those studies, um, which I know you've explored in other podcasts, um, but but they really really focused in. They only gave one study the highest rating of, that they give, which was a moderate level of evidence, and that of course was the Hera study from Norway, which uses uh, a four spike burst pattern that has never been shown to be efficacious for, for any person um, after giving a trial of a different form of stimulation. So tr- they, they do a trial of traditional stimulation, then they give them this ineffective stimulation versus sham um, with no adjustments or anything during the period of, of the three months, and they, they call that their study. That received the highest weight of evidence. They excluded studies that compared different SES waveforms or, or um, programming techniques. So they did not consider SES to be an established therapy. You could have SES versus an established therapy, an alternative therapy, but not versus another SES form. So they excluded many of the best studies that have been done recently, the largest and most robust studies done. Um, so we really had to, in a very limited time, go after the specific studies they'd selected. We chose to not talk about a couple of them, like the Druva study, which looks at the economics and opioid prescription and other other aspects of SES care. That's a horrible study too, but we just didn't have enough time to, to spend time on it. We did feel like we needed to comment on an older studies that looked at the workers' comp population in the state of Washington that, that had some significant flaws. Um, they had uh, they, they were not really, it wasn't randomized or controlled in any way. It was just a matched group to compare to, and they didn't have very good selection criteria because only slightly over 50% of them had a successful trial, and it was conducted in around 2009, so it was really super old technology. So I, I went after those things, and then I pointed out, all the, despite all those bad studies that they emphasized, all the positive outcomes they had in their in their report with, with table after table showing clear separation in SES outcomes versus uh, conventional medical management. So that's what that that's the basis of the report, and the report does not make a recommendation for coverage. The report just says, "Here's the evidence," and it, it answers the four key questions and says, "There's not good evidence for these things." And then we turn it over. Once I kind of laid the baseline to say, "There's problems with this report," I gave it over to Fong and said, "Okay, now it's your, now it's your baby. Take it forward and show them, show them what they should be looking at." This is crazy because this is, I mean, this is like PTSD from the Cochrane Review. Uh, episode that we did uh, where we talked about Hara at all and all the flaws in that study. Mustafa and I, I think we didn't sleep for maybe three nights trying to get that together. But I mean, we talked about a lot of these issues. So I would certainly encourage all of our listeners, if you haven't already, go back and listen to that episode. It's going to really give some um, deeper understanding to what um, Brett just laid out for us. I think it also puts into perspective how efficient you guys had to be within 20 minutes. I've read the evidence report. Dr. Gabakla has read the evidence report. It's quite extensive. There's a lot in it. And to comment on all of the things within 20 minutes is quite impressive. So kudos to you guys. Bong, how long? How big was our slide deck we gave them? It was like 70 or 80 plus slides. We didn't show a bunch of them. We used some of them as, as reference slides. And then went, I went next slide, next slide, next slide, next slides through, through a bunch of them. Um, 
So we, we wanted them in the public record. So that's why we gave them this huge slide deck. And I think one thing before Fong comments is that there's so much more about where his presentation went. We were fortunate to have, you know, Paul Dreyfus uh, join our group of eight and really had extensive uh, experience in the past with dealing with HTCC and about really understanding what parts of the literature are you going to go after and where, where can you help educate this group so they can make an informed decision. So that really helped us because obviously, again, 20 minutes is just scratching the surface, um, but that also helped us kind of prepare um, uh, and, and set up some kind of a strategy uh, that, that hopefully, um, you know, we were going to be able to deliver whether they gave us 10 minutes or 20 minutes on that day. But Fong, obviously, would, it would be great if he could comment on those key questions and, and what he really did to switch, I thought, the to try to teach them the benefits of um, uh, comparative studies and why that's important. Because there's such a bias with these groups around everything has to be placebo-controlled, placebo-controlled, and it, it's just this, this huge hoop you need to jump through. So, Yeah, so, um, you know, the, the question that... Uh, um that uh, uh, Sharavni gave was a, <laughs> about, I mean, the concern about PTSD and the Cochrane Review, I, I share the same sentiment. Um, because in the end of the day, this was an academic exercise that was performed by statisticians uh, without clear clinical kind of understanding about how we treat patients uh, real life. You know, the aim of the, of the review was to focus on, you know, what is considered the highest level of evidence, which are sham controlled studies. And um, I think that, uh, indeed, there was, was a really great talk you guys had about the Cochrane analysis because you guys in that podcast really detail about how these studies are hard to conduct for various reasons. Any surgical randomized control studies can be challenging to perform because of ethical reasons, of feasibility reasons, and a lot of important uh, points that you guys make in that podcast. Um, and so because of this, they excluded... Um, SCS comparator studies, as Dr. Stanos had mentioned. And we know that because SCS is an established standard of care, uh, most of the studies that are indeed industry um, are SCS comparator studies, um, looking at usually traditional waveforms against the new study, whether it's high frequency, high density, burst stimulation, DRG. And so for this reason, the largest studies that we have to date, as we all know, including Sunburst, Evoke, Senza, um, Accurate. These were not included in their analysis. Um, and and for explicit reasons, they, they chose to exclude uh, these kind of studies. One of the arguments that we had here is, yes, these are not sham control studies, which would put them at level one evidence, so to speak, but they are data we need to look at, and they present the best evidence that we have. So even though we don't have the ideal evidence, this is the, some of the best that we do have, and we need to seriously look at these studies as well and acknowledge some of the issues to potentially bias or blinding and so forth, but know that these studies were published in highly reputable journals with the largest cohort um, of patients. You know, in the Peterson study was over 200 patients. Um, uh, Senza had almost 200 patients. Uh, and and so what's interesting is, Dr. Stacey had mentioned, the studies that they chose to focus on were the last studies that were sham controlled, but were of older technology. So we wanted to highlight that we need to really think about modern day uses of SCS instead of the older studies that, although they may be sham controlled, don't reflect how we use the technology today. One of the stated 
goals of the report was to understand the evidence of uh, behind uh, uh, use of spinal cord stimulation for the treatment of, say, CRPS or failed back or painful diabetic neuropathy. When they pool together the studies to offer some sort of statistical advantage for understanding the data, it's pooled of core symptoms, back pain, leg pain. So clinically, uh, we don't think about spinal cord stimulation, even though ultimately we want SCS to treat, help with symptoms of back and leg. We don't select our patients out. This is not a treatment for chronic back pain or chronic leg pain. This is a treatment for specific diagnoses, and these patients are highly selected based upon very complex clinical factors. And so for data to be presented in a way that simplifies the clinical process, that actually obscures uh, the reality which we're trying to understand with clinical research, which is approximating how closely a treatment actually leads to a biological response. The tough part is you know, they were thinking of three conditions, failed back, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, complex regional pain syndrome. I mean, they, those are complex conditions within themselves. You could have had a, a hearing for each condition. And here, yeah. like, you, I don't even want to explain like how, I think it came up, Some one of the other um, presenters kind of gave a quick one sentence um, explanation of what CRPS was. And it was not close, but you know, this is just, I think the challenge of this, we're dealing with very complicated medical conditions. And then we're going to talk about spinal cord stem for these three different conditions, you know? So it's it just, it was um, kind of mind boggling. I want to follow up on the bias you mentioned against industry funded studies. This is the health technology clinical committee, right? So there are several surgical technologies, I'm sure, outside of SCS, outside of pain medicine that they're reviewing. And so is it an issue with the funding itself or is it an issue because the industry studies are comparative studies and not placebo-controlled studies? So I think um, I think it's both, uh, Mustafa. I think it's a really good point. So um, industry-sponsored studies... I think in general have a, I mean, I think we kind of talk about how uh, one of the issues we need to contend with with modern clinical research is that mostly positive studies are what's published. And I think that trend is more so with industry sponsored. Um, and so there are, you know, this is a global issue, not just an industry related issue. Um, there does appear to be an emphasis on challenges and ethical concerns when industry is involved in both the data collection as well as the data analysis. And all of this has to be disclosed um, in each of these studies. And every step of the way where people are collecting or analyzing the data, there could be differences. So for example, a company may choose to sponsor study, but the statisticians are not part of the company but some studies may have statisticians in their own company perform the analysis. So you can see here that any part of the clinical research process that industry is, is touching, so to speak, um, uh, may present some sort of perceived conflict. Now, what's important here is that the FDA, by law, has to regulate and oversee every step of the way. And so it doesn't matter who is doing the analysis, who's doing the data collection, the FDA is intimately involved and has the power of law to punish um, illegal 
research activity. We spent a lot of time criticizing industry studies. However, you know, we the Druva study was was funded by insurance. So there's there's that, you know, bias there too that I feel like doesn't receive the same amount of critique. This is a very human enterprise. You know, there are multiple stakeholders here and um we have to understand that there is financial conflicts regardless of who is doing the study and that there will be in some ways winners and losers. I think what's key here is to highlight from our perspective that you know our strategy here was to present all the data so that um, that the committee members were aware that there was plenty of robust data to choose from and look from in order to create the most informed decision possible about the coverage of our patients in our state. Uh, you know, 2.5 million as someone who practices pain medicine in the state of Washington, this is very important to me to be able to provide equitable access of high quality pain care to everyone. So for an evidence report to come out and provide only a segment of the overall literature, I thought was just not, um, um, optimal for, for understanding the role of this technology for our patients. Yeah. And I mean, we, talked about this in the previous podcast. So we're not going to go through this again, you know, in super detail, but I think it's worth talking about some of the issues with spinal cord stimulation, you know, pre some of these new technologies, right? There was not paresthesia free technology. So it's really hard to conduct a sham controlled study. I mean, it's just almost impossible. So there's that element, which you said, aggregate analytics, they were non-physicians, they're statisticians, right? So they don't understand that. They don't have that context. When I think of a hearing, I kind of think of a congressional hearing and in congressional hearings, they sort of have a discourse and they go back and forth. Was that the case here? And sort of on that note, were there any unforeseen obstacles that came across during the day? So the first thing is there is no discourse with anyone who's not in the inner circle. So we were not in the inner circle. We, we gave our talks, you know, the 21 or 22 minutes, whatever it was, was over. We could say nothing. And they asked questions that we knew the answers to. We couldn't say anything. They're, thankfully, their clinical expert could and could chime in. And, and based upon our experience with prior hearings, they really leaned on the clinical expert way way more than they have typically in the past. And and he did speak up and speak quite a bit uh, to to issues and help clarify things. But they also discussed amongst themselves, like spinning off topic, um, because they don't know what they're talking about. So it was a little little bit frustrating. And and also sitting at the table was a representative from Medicaid who gave a presentation that was very biased against SES and and got to chime in later. And advanced analytics got got, got to chime in and and respond to things. Agri analytics had a 45-minute presentation, you know, before us. And so all these other people had a lot more time. And like Brett said, I think what we did our 20-minute presentation, and then the rest of the day, we listened um, to the discussion. And like Brett said, it was this kind of roller coaster up and down. At one point, you felt like they were starting to get an understanding of the technology. And I think I remember one part, one of the um, 
uh, members of the committee said, well, why don't we do a trial to see if it works? And then if it works, we'll do the implant. I mean, something that was, well, we thought we had explained that early on. So you realize that the, the, the people are trying, right? They're, they're, they're professionals. They're, they look at a number of different technologies throughout the year. Um, but that that was tough. And especially like Brett said, we weren't allowed to comment. And fortunately, the medical expert was, but he's only able to comment when they ask him a question too, in this case. It's frustrating to, to listen to. Um, and then they actually vote on the level of evidence and they have a whole process that they go through uh, before they make their decision. I do think the committee members are doing their best because there's a 200 and something page report. They've, they've heard thing after detail, after presentation after presentation. And that question about the, the trial was from just one person. It was one but, person, but, still, but it was late but in the day. Still, what's like, going on, right? It was a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> it still was a surprise to us. The clinical expert does do SCS and is a pain trained person. So th- that, that's quite helpful. The HTCC is tasked by the HCA to represent the state of Washington in terms of diversity, in terms of expertise. These members chosen across diverse fields from um, physicians to nurses, to chiropractors, to naturopaths. So it truly is a very diverse body of individuals and they have um, aspects of their resume that the HCA um, appreciate and uh, therefore are invited to participate on this committee. Um, They are making decisions across enormous complexity from radiology to chemotherapeutics to stereotactic body radiation to surgery to SCS. So it's a tall order for for this committee to be able to think about and, and weigh in about on the evidence for for all these disparate technologies. So it's understandable how challenging of a task this is. Um, So they try to bridge this uh, knowledge gap with having that uh, clinical expert uh, with them that they independently seek out um, prior to the meeting. So they do try to incorporate this uh, as well. I I think the point though is is well made, which is um, there is a a power differential here. Um, We did feel quite helpless because um, we thought that we could provide additional expert input. And to what Brett said, um, the expert that they did have did provide considerable support and knowledge for the committee. Um, it, it's always good to have more voices um, at the table, but at the same time, we need to respect their processes, right? Every single technology goes through the same process and we have to do the same. Well, I appreciate your diplomacy. If you guys would give one piece of key advice to future advocacy groups dealing with state hearings, either in Washington state or somewhere else, where what would that be? Do your homework and, and know the committee, know who they are, know what their, rep, what their position is, know how they make decisions, know the things they're allowed to consider and the things that they're told to d- be dismissive of. So you know the situation going in. Because if you just heard there's a committee that decides this, you might have a different a set of assumptions than the reality. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is to be really well prepared. And the evidence matters. So know what they're looking at for their evidence, know it backwards and forwards, know what's good and what's a, where, where it's flawed, know the stuff that you, they ignored and how you're going to figure out a path to bring it forward to them and be able to anticipate questions, anticipate thoughts, and and have have it ready to go. Um, I think that applies everywhere. But every state 
every situation is going to be different. If it's an insurance company you're going against, it's different than if it's you know a state state situation or it's a federal federal level um, policy. So there's lots of differences here, um, but the more prepared you are, the better it is. And Paul Dreyfus, we had a meeting in September, which was we, a journal club, and we discussed some of the key articles that were in the evidence report. There's about 20-ish people at that meeting, if I remember. Is that, is that right, guys? Around 20? Yeah. Maybe yeah. even 25. Um, but afterwards, the group of us that were going to be the taking the action met with, with Paul, and he said, be prepared to work every weekend and harder than you ever imagined to be ready for this one hearing. And he was right. It was we we did it. Yeah, and I, yeah. and I think too what we learned from it was, you know, it, it's it's the, the pain community is a small community. We have these different groups, um, multi you know uh, specialty uh, pain work group. Um, there's different uh, groups, uh, ASA, AAPM. Um, you know, we can communicate with each other and and have a more common voice. I think you know, uh, Shravni, you had mentioned that. In the past, there is, uh, you know, sometimes some conflict between a lot of these societies. But in this case, we had a, a really shared vision uh, and it was actually a lot easier to do. And uh, but I do think you have to have you have to be reputable and, you know, have your uh, your points, you know, very simple. Um, you want to be a really good asset to these groups when you're presenting to them uh, to be the true um, expert in the room, because I, I do think in some cases they may hear it different from other types of experts. They really have. um uh, you know, we want a coverage for this and maybe they're, they're not as scientifically based. So we're always kind of fighting against some of our past colleagues that may have painted a, a kind of less than a positive uh, picture for us. But but I think we, you know, this is why we have societies um, and this is what societies should be doing um, to kind of speak out for us. And so it really takes collaboration between those groups. Um, um, but I think in our case, it, you know, like uh, like Brett said, we had a good time doing this and we all learned a lot from each other as well. Um, and I think we realized kind of the power um, that we have with multiple societies, you know, standing up to support us, whether it was, you know, someone from Florida or another state registering to be on the meeting. I mean, it was such a powerful um, kind of part and really helped elevate us uh, and show the group that that we were really coming um, with a strong voice, even though we kind of throw that around kind of cliche. Uh, I think we really had a strong voice. It came up a couple of times in the meeting where they mentioned you know, uh, wow, this is the most we've ever had a uh, number of uh, registrants for a meeting, an HCCC meeting. Uh, we're aware of all of the societies that have weighed in on this. Uh, and so I think those are things um, that we really sh should take for granted that that was really powerful. I'd like to add, um, uh, every state is different, obviously. Um, and uh, you really need to find out, number one, what are the rules that, that you know, are, are asked to, to participate in the process? And then the second is, what is what are they looking for? I think this was the part and focus that I thought was really important for for our efforts here. The committee for the HTCC is specifically looking for evidence. They've hired a third party vendor to collect the evidence. They spent the vast majority of the deliberation looking at tables and charts and at pooled data to understand if this is efficacious and safe. And so in the 40 minutes, for example, the only um, uh, moments that we had to present information, if that time were used to talk about things like, you know, well, this is the only state that doesn't cover it. I can't believe us. You know, why, why are we doing this? And it spent more time on non-evidence related topics. It wouldn't have been as effective. So we really wanted to, to capitalize on what they wanted to hear, which was give us the data. 
And we tried our best to say, well, hey, the report came up short with giving you everything. Along those lines, can you tell us about their rubric? Did they have one? Yeah, I can speak a little bit to that. Um, so what they're uh, what they are doing is they're they're looking at efficacy. So every member is asked to determine if the technology is less effective, equivocal, or more effective. And you can see here how um, every individual is going to look at this set of conditions and may behave differently depending on how the group responds and how they've looked at different technologies in the past. And after they've determined if the technology is less effective, equivocal, or more effective, then they, they, they give a confidence rating and they rate it as a confidence of low, medium, or high. So for example, they may say, well, the, the efficacy is, you know, more effective than standard of care, but their confidence may be low, or they may say, well, hey, the, the evidence is equivocal compared to standard of care, but my evidence is, my confidence is high. So it's very interesting because although the focus here is on data, the focus here is on studies and research, in the end, it's a qualitative uh, response that every member has to provide. And based upon that qualitative response, there's a determination of coverage. Um, and there's a, a an odd number of individuals. So the HTCC is composed of 11 people so that there can be a majority vote to determine coverage. I would say, I mean, I will say this is not that different from the grade methodology, if you're familiar with that. So at least they were very scientific about how they went about this. So that's that's actually quite refreshing. We're talking about the rubric for the evidence. But Dr. Stacey, you mentioned earlier that since 2010, you've been trying to have rehearings for SCS, and they kept coming back to you and saying that there's not enough evidence. The HTCC hired aggregate analytics to put together this evidence report, but who was making that determination for the past 13 years that there wasn't enough evidence up until now? My understanding is it was an internal review of the evidence without hiring an outside vendor. And then when we submitted our document uh, in the summer of 2022, which was several pages long with dozens and dozens of references and making multiple points about, about spinal cord simulation and the evidence and new indications and new technologies, et cetera, that convinced them that, okay, there's, there's enough that we need to maybe look in a different way than we've been doing so far. I think that was a key point. The other thing I I, I, I uh, want to add to what something Fong had said was, Fong went and looked at several of their past decisions on totally unrelated topics and found that they had used comparative data, which they'd excluded from our evidence report, and pointed out to them, hey, you've used this in the past, you need to use this now. Um, and they listened to that. They clearly listened to that. It, it was powerful. That's that's important. You, you you did your homework in that regard, right? Yeah, and I think you know, like Brett said, um, the formal letter that was sent to get the re-reviewed um, accepted was all, also included. You know, different hospital systems sending letters from their governmental affairs. So I, I the one thing I think it's important for all of us, whether we are in a large hospital system or not, you have governmental affairs people 
that also can help you know push these things through um a lot of times we think that it's just the physicians but you're you're working in systems those systems should su support you um and so that's what we all did whether it's university of washington or providence um the other local hospitals uh, physicians also got letters so you really want to try to um increase awareness uh and to put pressure on these groups i think as much as you can and and a lot of times we kind of forget our, the own institutes we work for uh, that can help with that as well. I think that's fascinating that you went back and basically looked for precedent, you know, like a lawyer would do. Um, and that's how you had to come about, come to this point. Um, you know, I would say that we're fortunate that the preliminary vote was in favor of coverage and we can call that a success, but this is just a battle in a war, right? Because they still have to meet in January. And at that point, they're going to tell us the final decision and what the conditions are for coverage. So between now and January, what are you all working on and what will the hearing look like in January? Well, well I did make a preliminary for failed back um, diabetic peripheral neuropathy uh, and CRPS. And so that's clear. Uh, now the decision is on um, uh, the criteria. And maybe Fong can comment on that because we actually included um, a breakdown of uh, what we felt um, could be a good way or what's the standard um, for um, for deciding uh, criteria for spinal cord stem implant, but they um, are in the process of doing that on their own. I don't know, Fong, if you want to comment on that. I thought that was interesting. Oh, sure. Um, as mentioned, we just had such limited time in presenting our, our, our presentation. So the PowerPoint slide, we did provide um, a glossary of terms for SES, like what's the difference between a trial and an implant. We provided um, uh, uh, coverage determination considerations, like what's the diagnosis, what are the PROs to look for, what are the pain scores that we want to see improved, who's a candidate for a trial, what's the psychological screening process like. So we included all this information in the slide deck. Um, and and so in hopes that they'll look at it. And and I think that's kind of that's kind of the most we can do is is provide this information and hope that we have the credibility that they'll look back and and see that we've tried to really put together best practices all in one document. And we've also volunteered our services. So we, we've said we are happy, any of us individually or as a as a committee, to help you with 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 you know the guidelines for implementing spinal cord simulation for the HCA population. And we agree we want it to be used rationally and reasonably, and not overused, and used in patients who are most likely to respond. We we have the same goals here, and so we we tried to tell them this, but they have there hasn't been much feedback yet. What implications do you think that this has not only for Washington state, but other states across the country as new interventions arise? If you're a pain physician, you're talking to another pain physician. There are so many assumptions about where you're starting and thinking that we think, oh, this makes complete sense to us. So therefore, it must make sense to someone else. When we're explaining a technology or a treatment to other physicians, they are not starting at the same place as we are. And that could be they have a perspective that interventions are a waste of money or a perspective that interventions are only for a very tiny select few or that I, I had an intervention that was great. I think they're wonderful. You don't know. So you have to assume that they are a skeptical audience and they need evidence to, to sway them and they're not going to let their emotions cloud that. 
you can make an emotional appeal too, <laughs> but but it's better to make an evidence re- uh, appeal. And so when we're designing studies and publishing things, we need to really think about who the audience is. It isn't just to get it published in a journal only read by pain people and only read by a segment of the pain population, but it really is to have it so that it can stand alone as evidence in a different different setting. And I think that's the big the big message is evidence counts. Clinical practice, that's nice. Evidence counts. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't implant spinal cord stimulators and a lot of my colleagues in our clinic does, um, you know, provides that. And I've, I've learned a lot through this whole process. You know, I think the other part is like, it's kind of what Brett said is that a lot of the, our colleagues, they may have a basic understanding of pain pathways that they learned 30 years ago, you know, like of nociceptive pain. And then they'll hear a presentation and we'll, someone will jump right to the evidence and say, well, this showed great outcomes and decreased opioid use. If you don't really explain to them this technology or the complexities of pain, they're going to be stuck in whatever bias they had before, and they're, you're not going to have any credibility. So I think a lot of times we just jump to that or or we push too much to the advocacy side and say, this is bad for our patients. Well, you first have to educate them. And that's what I think we really clearly did at the beginning was we tried. And I hope they listened. You know, We said, we are here to be a resource for you today because there was methodologic flaws in your review. We didn't say it was a bad review. I mean, we said there was methodologic flaws and we want to show you why. We explained very clearly that they don't, a lot of the um, uh, aggregate analytics group didn't have the clinical expertise to understand these things. So I think you really have to set it up the right way. Then you get the credibility. Hopefully, then they're going to understand what you're talking about. I think where where we make mistakes is we jump to, this is the outcome. It did show, you know, decrease adverse events. And and no one really does the other work early on. And so I think maybe that's something that um, I I took out of this, the importance of that. And it was the same thing that happened in 2018 when we the evidence review on, on medial branch blocks here was based on really horrible literature. Um, in the same content, the same uh, issues came up. They they didn't understand the procedures. And so I think all of us with any kind of procedures or any type of chronic pain, it's so complex. We really have to be able to understand, let them understand these things a little bit better. And then they're going to be able to kind of accept and uh, uh, what we're saying is, is credible. Fong, I'd like to hear from you about this. Brett mentioned earlier that we have to be thinking about where we're publishing our study design. It's not just about getting a publication, right? It's about who's the audience. Now it's insurers, insurances. It's not just other physicians, um, it's payers. And so when we look forward and we talk about broader implications, how do we set ourselves up for success? Yeah, this is a really important question. You know, oftentimes we look to um, reputable organizations and their decision-making when it comes to um, uh, future uh, sort of coverage decisions. As an example, CMS, Medicare, Medicaid services, they really have a large impact across all insurance companies nationally. So the example to use here is in our state is, you know, Washington state is truly a holdout when it comes to spinal cord stimulation. So uh, as, as physicians in the state, we did talk amongst ourselves about how there are enormous consequences for how this committee will, committee can influence the, even the local insurance companies and what they um, which may or may not choose to cover in the future. And so the lesson here for all of us is that um, you need to get involved locally. Uh, we, we Making a small uh, movement towards 
um, talking and, prov and providing the best evidence in our field and educating our peers and colleagues and legislators and the public. Where Whatever you can do locally is going to make a big difference because um, here in the state of Washington, you know, if this coverage gets reversed, this is, will be, you know, the first time um, that a non-determined uh, uh, treatment will become uh, will become covered. Um, so this is a is a big deal for for our community. So um, uh, to to I'm not sure if I'm exactly answering your question here, but I think we just need to in our own kind of uh, local communities uh, seek to engage in this process of educating, of having our voices being heard, and then if uh, opportunities arise in an academic institution to be part of the evidence um, uh, discovery process and to to figure out how best we can provide and conduct the studies that will allow everyone, um, uh, our patients included, to best understand, you know, the role of these technologies and what it can and cannot be helpful for. Yeah, I mean, I think what you guys have done in your state is phenomenal, uh, certainly an example for everyone across the nation. Uh, and I applaud you all for that. I think we also have to think proactively, though, and how do we get ahead of this? So we don't want to be reactive. You know, we've had to be reactive. We've had to be reactive in this situation. We've had to be reactive to this most recent Cochrane review that we keep talking about. But how do we become, you know, instead of sort of chasing the problem after it's a problem, how do we get in front of it? Uh, what do we do to make sure that outdated, inaccurate information, a lack of understanding about studies like the heavily flawed Hara et al. study uh, do not lead to a lack of coverage for patients. And I recognize that we've sort of talked about this today at nauseum, but just your final you know, two cents on this topic. I think we need to really take a hard look at ourselves and kind of think about, you know, what we're, what we're, what we're doing here as clinicians and what we want to accomplish for our patients in our field. And we need to first make sure that we ourselves are educated and we are aware of the evidence and that we can talk intelligently about when it is appropriate to use a certain technology, a certain intervention, and to have that dialogue with all of our colleagues. Um, it is only in that if we can use the evidence and communicate the evidence and be able to keep up to date with the evidence that we can um, have an ongoing dialogue with the with the, all the people around us. You know, when we think about spinal cord stimulation, one thing that we did not mention are our surgical colleagues and our um, other physicians who might have a lot of interest in patients that have chronic pain after medical intervention. And so if we don't have the support of everybody in the community, it's a very hard battle to to fight alone. So this is the part that I think is important, which is uh, the only way to fight against outdated and accurate information is if you stay up to date. A lot of times we focus on just that small area where we practice, and there's so many other things in pain medicine that we all need to really keep um, up with. You know, I mean, there's a lot of new technologies, virtual reality. There's you know other technologies that are going to be coming out. I think we we all need to have a, a good understanding of these instead of waiting till there's a, you know, a fire drill and we're trying to defend something specific that we do that you really need to, if you're going to decrease burnout, you know, get back to trying to take some time away from clinic and, and go to meetings, try to learn these things because there's so many things going on. Um, and I think a lot of times we just get so stuck in our small area of practice and we want to just focus on that. And I think that also helps decrease burnout as well. You know, just once or twice a year, going to these meetings, trying to just get a better understanding because uh, a lot of times we can kind of get stuck if we don't do that. And I guess, yeah, 
the other thing in your question was about how do we, you know, combat bad information and bad studies. And, and I guess in addition to staying connected and staying involved is if you see something that doesn't make sense, you've got to comment on it. And sometimes you have to be in the weeds to be able to comment. Like the, the HERA study, just again, if you look at their published protocol, the only type of burst they talk about is burst DR. But the protocol itself did not use burst TR, used a made-up burst that doesn't work. That seems like a disqualification <laughs> error. Um, you know, like the like, like judge would raise a red flag and say, you're out of here. But it didn't happen. But we need to point out that that is a disqualifying factor. And we need to say it every time we talk about that study and to say there are other studies that actually have a study plan published, that that's the study that they conducted. We should focus on those. Um, I, I don't know how to do it in a way that that gets people to stop focusing on the studies that get, get lots of excitement um, be, because they get published in journals and probably reviewed by people that didn't understand pain. But but it it's... It's our mission, I guess, to continue doing that. And I guess the other thing to think about is that to assume that other physicians with different perspectives also have good intentions, just maybe they're different good intentions than ours. And they come from a different perspective and they have different built-in biases and understandings of things. And finding the common ground is the important thing. Um, and getting outside of our own comfort level by going to different groups and going to different meetings is a great idea. I love it. So I'm hearing, see something, say something, uh, stay up to date yourself so that you know what's going on. So then you can go out and educate others and disseminate that knowledge. So I think those are great takeaway points. Mustafa, any final th thoughts or anything you want to say, comments? I just want to thank you guys uh, and everyone that was in the work group and everyone who put their efforts towards this. Not only did you impact millions of people to get coverage, but you've really laid out a foundation for future groups and other states and, and future treatments to kind of work off of what you guys have done. So you guys have been the pioneers in this and you should be very, very proud of yourselves. We are very proud of you and uh, thank you for your service, really. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, this is, you guys have set precedent, right? We talked about precedent earlier, but this is going to be the precedent if other states have to fight similar battles, um, if other physicians rather in other states have to fight similar battles and perhaps not even in pain medicine, you know, um, you guys have done an incredible service to those uh, two plus million people who are suffering and maybe could be candidates for this procedure. So we thank you for that. We thank the entire working group. Um, we also thank you for your time and uh, especially on Sunday evening, although we all find this invigorating as we talked about. And um, thank you to the American Academy of Pain Medicine for this podcast. Thanks Mustafa for co-hosting with me. We'll see you again next time. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Pain Matters podcast. If you have any questions about the content that we covered today, or if you'd just like to continue the conversation, please tweet us at americadpainmed, that's A-M-E-R-A-C-A-D-P-A-I-N-M-E-D with the hashtag PainPod. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your podcast player to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Shravni Jabakala, and this is the Pain Matters Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Pain Matters Podcast. 
If there's anything we mentioned in today's show you missed, don't worry. We take the notes for you at painmed.org slash podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider pressing the subscribe button on your podcast player so you never miss a future episode. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review to help us reach and educate even more of our peers in pain medicine.